These projects are not new. The people to people project have been actively promoted and millions have been poured into them after the Oslo agreements. But it has shown that it has not worked because we're here today and Israel has only been able to cover up its crime and to continue its dispossession through active impunity, through partly this greenwashing. This is Rethinking Palestine, a podcast from Ashabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network. We are a virtual think tank that aims to foster public debate on Palestinian human rights and self-determination. We draw upon the vast knowledge and experience of the Palestinian people, whether in Palestine or in exile, to put forward strong and diverse Palestinian policy voices. In this podcast, we will be bringing these voices to you so that you can listen to Palestinians sharing their analysis wherever you are in the world. At a conference in February of this year, Israeli President Isaac Herzog announced his vision for a regional partnership to create a renewable Middle East. Herzog spoke of joint environmental threats, especially around water resources, and claimed that they can only be solved by cooperation. Herzog has already visited Greece, Cyprus and Turkey, and has stated that he hopes that the cooperation will include Egypt, the Gulf countries and Palestinians. This discourse of Israel being a champion of environmentalism in the region is not new. Indeed, the Israeli regime has often used a tactic known as greenwashing to improve its image. Greenwashing in general is an attempt to use certain environmental initiatives to hide behind the fact that it actually causes more damage than it does to help prevent climate change. Now, globally, the climate crisis is fueled by inequality and engineered by complicit governments and corporations that put profit before people and planet. Everywhere, the least powerful are the most effective. The Israeli regime uses greenwashing to cover up the disastrous impact it's having on the Palestinian environment and landscape. And Palestinians living under Israeli occupation and apartheid, with no control over their land or natural resources, are highly vulnerable to the climate crisis. Some have even been calling this a form of climate apartheid. In this context, and in the context of renewed US aid to the 1967 Palestinian occupied territories that is directly funneling money into normalization projects, eco-normalization or environmental normalization initiatives are on the rise. To discuss this with me on this episode is Enes Abderazat, Advocacy Director at the Palestine Institute for Public Diplomacy and a Shabaka Policy Member. Ines, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Rethinking Palestine. Thank you, Yara. It's good to be home, almost. So, Inez, I think our listeners are aware of the concept of greenwashing, but perhaps you could explain it a bit more in the Palestinian context and also in the context of renewed US aid funding and explicit support for people-to-people projects. Yes, thank you, Yara, and I think you also outlined some in your introduction. In our particular context, I think such hypocrisy, you know, that lies behind the concept of greenwashing is probably better understood through the prism of green colonialism and even green settler colonialism. So the Zionist project, you know, has been a settler colonial endeavor, as also recognized by its founders, Herzl, Ben-Gurion and others, until, you know, colonialism was was recognized as harmful and and, and not so popular. So Israel actually moved to denying uh, that it was. So what it has meant is, you know, this continued practices to replace the native population, the Palestinian population, by an outside settler population here, the Jewish people. And it was primarily advanced through um, uh, mechanisms of land dispossession, displacement, and also natural resources appropriation and exploitation. So we're talking mainly uh, land, water, 
but also minerals uh, by controlling the Dead Sea or stones, you know, controlling quarries in the West Bank. So, you know, greenwashing, as you said, is not you and this green colonialism. So it has been taking the form of the Jewish National Fund planting non-indigenous, non-endemic trees on top of Palestinian villages they demolished in 1948 and 67, but also creating environmental reserves on land annexed and taken from Palestinians uh, in the West Bank, etc. And I think what's important to get to the international donors intervention in USAID is that so Israel has built its diplomacy and prosperity by exploiting such uh, colonial domination and making an advantage of basically this dispossession of Palestinians, particularly through developing like agro-technologies, green technologies, water-efficient technologies that, that they're exporting around the world. And these have fundamentally been uh, structured and developed around, around the dispossession of Palestinians. And so in the context of international donor interventions in USAID, they're actively, uh, I think, normalizing that dispossession. They're normalizing, entrenching these, these domination structures and playing into promoting Israel as this beacon of a fight against the climate crisis, against the environmental uh, crisis. Um, and so it it's basically denies these uh, dire asymmetries of power that exists here and the denial of, of rights of Palestinians and the denial of, of agency, of decision-making power of Palestinians. So it's, it's presenting these, these projects, promoting you know, cooperation between Israelis uh, and Palestinians. That means uh, either it's the Palestinian Authority or NGOs or the business sector as one of cooperation and peace building. So instead, again, of, of recognizing that asymmetry of power, it's presenting the situation and normalizing and trying to, to present the situation as one of a dispute among two parties with equal rights, one of, you know, post-conflict situation where trust and dialogue could solve the injustice uh, instead of, again, uh, looking at the reality. So, Inez, what might some of these environmental normalization projects look like? Can you give us some concrete examples? Yes. So I can give an example uh, in the context of this uh, renewed USAID interventions uh, in Palestine. Uh, they are very much trying to promote the implementation of the Abraham Accords, the normalization agreements between Israel, the UAE, Sudan, uh, Morocco, and, and more indirectly, Saudi Arabia. Um, so one of these projects, for example, is called like Prosperity Green and Prosperity Blue. It's very much private sector oriented, which also poses the problem of making resources like water and energy commodities, and especially water, which is a right, making it you know, a commodity to be traded. But more importantly, the, the problem with this project is, is exactly that Palestinians are completely absent of, of this project. And it's basically here to promote UAE investments and Israeli investments and interests and completely erase Palestinians from the picture. So, so this project is about uh, producing renewable energies in Jordan, exporting it to Israel uh, so that they desalinate water that then they would, you know, export again to, to Jordan. So this, this kind of exchange where uh, again, we see that the Palestinians uh, are, will either receive you know, or, or be sold some water by the Israelis, the very water that Israel steal from them, uh, or they will be completely erased from the equation uh, so far. And what's interesting is, you know, how, again, the U.S. is presenting it. So Kerry said, you know, 
The Middle East is at the front line of the climate crisis, and only by working together can countries in the region rise to the challenge. And he also said that this is a welcome example of how cooperation can accelerate the energy transition and build greater resilience. So we're, we very much see, you know, the uh, exploitation of the climate change, uh, you know, needs and the climate crisis into normalizing this type of projects where effectively Palestinians continue to be dispossessed of their renewable resources by Israel as a colonial power. And unfortunately, they're very, I think, popular because who doesn't love, again, cooperation, peace uh, and renewable energies? All of these things uh, look, you know, very nice on paper and politically. So that's how they're, they're really receiving such a, such a, a support. And I think an interesting other example is, is one that has failed, is the, the so-called Red Sea, Dead Sea Canal, uh, which was supposed to have uh, the water from the Red Sea desalinated and then the brine uh, transferred into the Dead Sea. And again, this project has failed. The Palestinians were very critical of it, uh, in, like mainly NGOs, because the PA had signed uh, the MOU for this project to happen. Uh, they were a bit, you know, forced into it. But what this project has shown is that eventually it would it would have normalized it. It would have normalized the annexation of Israel to the to controlling the Dead Sea. I mean, the Dead Sea is in occupied West Bank. Yet this project received support from the World Bank, uh, from the U.S., and from you know all the international donor community, despite its tremendous problematic approach. If you are enjoying this podcast please visit our website, www.al-shabaka.org, where you will find more Palestinian policy analysis and where you can join our mailing list and donate to support our work. I think it would be a good idea just to pause for a minute and define what normalization is, because some of our listeners might um, not be so aware. Normalization is the act of treating the Israeli regime as a normal entity as opposed to an apartheid regime. And anti-normalization as a concept and a political practice has been agreed upon by the majority of, uh, by consensus, by the majority of Palestinian civil society. And as you talked about you know, why these projects are so harmful. One of the main issues is the asymmetry of power that is presented through these projects. But I was hoping you could expand a bit further as as to why these initiatives and projects um, have such negative impacts on Palestinians. Yeah, I think the primary political impact, as mentioned, is that it it erases, but it it normalizes the disposition at play by Israel from Palestinian resources and and the denial of Palestinian rights to their resources. So when you're uh, looking at promoting, for example, dialogue on water issues between Israelis and Palestinians, or on renewable energy, uh, you know, having Israelis present, for example, them providing trucks of water to the Palestinians, or agreeing, cooperating on building some solar panels for Palestinians, what that means, it it's normalizes this colonial and patronizing approach, but it raises completely what's happening on the ground. What's happening in reality is that there is constant land confiscation and expropriation of Palestinians from their land, expulsion of rural communities to build settlements. There is active water, uh, you know, dispossession. I mean, Palestinians are only allowed to use 15% of the groundwater uh, in the West Bank. I mean, we have to look at the fact that the renewable uh, sources of water present in Palestine are mainly under, underneath the West Bank, so inside Palestine. 
yet Israel controlled more than 85% of that, and then sells back the water at very high prices to Palestinians. You know, it also raises the fact that, uh, again, Palestinians are given zero access to uh, the renewable uh, sources of the water of the Jordan River or the Dead Sea. Uh, it erases the fact that, again, rural communities in the Jordan Valley are denied to dig any wells or and denied uh, being connected to water. So I think, the, um, again, this, this is the hypocrisy of this kind of dialogue or trust building uh, project is that it allows Israel to present itself as, uh, you know, a good faith actor, as someone who's ready to uh, make a gesture when in reality, all of what this uh, international diplomacy and normalization agreement and Abraham Accords do is is entrenching and facilitating them uh, continuing that this procession. And the environmental impact are also extremely, um, you know, um, serious and they have been over decades. I mean, the agriculture sector of Palestine has shrank. Farmers have stopped uh, doing agriculture because it was so costly, because of the lack of water, because of the lack of access to land. So Palestinians have been denied, you know, food sovereignty and food security. We're looking also at, at the denial of infrastructure, um, especially the PA for years has been, uh, you know, have been asking to build infrastructures like solid waste management, wastewater management, renewable energy, uh, that has constantly been uh, denied by by Israel because it's located in areas that they want to keep under their control and they are annexing. So this has obviously had tremendous environmental impacts. Why? Because then Palestinians uh, resort to other sources of energies like fuel. Uh, this is particularly dire, you know, in Gaza under siege, where Israel has bombed the only water, uh, the power plant. And Gaza, you know, relies on, on fuel that is extremely polluting and it's harmful for people's health. Uh, but yet, you know, again, the World Bank and USAID will be promoting projects of, of building solar panels in Gaza or, you know, treating uh, some of the wastewater along the beach and then say that this is wonderful cooperation. Uh, so these are just some of the, the, the concrete impacts that we see that again, maintain Palestinians under the full control of, of Israel and their interest and will. And it also has, uh, I think, long-term impact for people's health and for the climate impact. And as I know you are interested in the case of water um, and you've worked in the water policy field and we've already discussed water quite a, a bit during this podcast, but I was hoping you could tell us a bit more about what you've observed about recent water normalization projects. Yeah, I think it's again interesting in, in what's happening with the Abraham Accords that is putting at the forefront again this approach of peace building, dialogue and, and people to people's approach. I think the discourse there and the political approach is really promoting water and environment as sectors that could be put first in terms of before looking at political issues or, or more what is considered more difficult issues then water and environment has kind of taken as oh sectors where it would be easier to build again that trust and dialogue and i have seen that at play uh, over the years so for example in in 2009 uh, you had the world bank that has released a report on water saying that the main obstacles to development for the water sector for palestinians is israeli occupation it's the obstacles that are documented in like a hundred page report 
that report was actively lobbied against by the Israelis and the World Bank since then has completely erased political this uh, analysis, this analysis of reality and has depoliticized completely its approach and rather moved towards, again, promoting this kind of normalizing the, the situation instead of looking at the root causes. And so we're here today where this uh, blue piece or green blue piece is promoted again uh, when we know that effectively, again, it, it's erasing the root causes and it has tremendous support from uh, international community receiving international awards, being invited at the UN Security Council to present again this, uh, this sort of peace building approach. And it has been years that it, these initiatives have been existing, you know, of water diplomacy, of using you know this uh, informal what we call track to diplomacy uh, to bring israelis and palestinians together to uh, discuss some of these sectorial issues but in reality you know all these initiatives like the geneva initiatives have been evaluated as not efficient so for example the swiss government has removed their funding to the geneva initiative and i think what it has done is again continue to promote this uh, this empty mantras and this this really this political discourse that is completely disconnected from uh, the reality instead of looking at, at the root causes and so it's almost like you know i think people can see behind i think some people can see behind that that propaganda i think it's, it's disinformation to bring about terms like peace or cooperation when in fact it's completely imposed projects imposed investments on the majority of Palestinians. And these projects tell Palestinians to forget the, you know, as you said, to forget the macro destructive regime. And instead, it tells them to focus on these small micro issues that will then be turned into this propaganda opportunity in which this narrative is peddled, um, where Palestinians and Israelis simply need to get along for an end to the so-called conflict. Not that the Israeli apartheid regime uh, needs to be dismantled. And I think some of our listeners might be a bit confused as to why Palestinians would participate in these kinds of projects. Of course, these are normalization projects, so there must be uh, Palestinian participants. And I think the confusion is fair, especially as there is a very clear consensus on normalization within Palestinian civil society. And of course, everything you mentioned as to how these projects are actually very harmful. So so what are the benefits for Palestinians who who do participate and, and what are the, the reasons, what do you think the reasons are behind their participation? I think we need to distinguish between how the Palestinian Authority has been participating, how the business sector has been participating and how the civil society has been participating. We have to look at first the Palestinian Authority uh, has signed the Oslo Agreement, which in, in themselves were putting the PA in a in a place of domination. Especially when we look at the water sector, you know, the Oslo Agreements only gave 80% of the control of the renewable sources of water to the Israelis, where Palestinians would be given a certain bulk of water. That was supposed to be temporary, uh, but the same exact amount is still it's still the one uh, given today to Palestinians uh, 30 years later. So that's one. And it has also created this these mechanisms, again, for Israeli and Palestinian bilateral discussions. So instead of looking at the uh, dire asymmetry of powers 
and recognizing that there should be an end to the occupation and apartheid, it did just create those mechanisms called the Joint Water Mechanism, the Joint Water Council, where you would have the Israeli government, the PA, uh, discussing the projects for Palestinians. And uh, the vast majority of the projects, again, of infrastructure projects presented by the PA were denied. So you have the PA that has been trapped into its own domination. And in order for, uh, let's say, Palestinians in the very uh, little islands uh, that the PA controls, uh, or at least where it controls civil matters like uh, water and education, they have, you know, they have had to surrender basically to what Israel authorized them to. So it means that for the PA, it's better to have one pipeline for water and, and two trucks of water instead of zero. Uh, so that's how it has been, you know, uh, playing out is that eventually in order to receive and to have access to the minimal amount of water, even if it's not your right to water, even if it's too little, even if you still get dispossessed from uh, water elsewhere, you still have to accept some of these uh, breadcrumbs uh, in order to function at a, at a minimum level and to give services to some of the population. And the business sector, well, some of, you know, some of the business sectors and companies have eventually benefited from the occupation. I mean, a lot of people know that, uh, you know, there has been Palestinian cement companies that have built the wall. So I think in the case of the business sector, there are private uh, interests at play because again, when you transform water or land or energy into commodities uh, that become just uh, privatized and you, and you privatize these, these, let's say the efforts that should be public into protecting public goods into Again, people having access to, to water and to land as a right, some companies uh, also are benefiting from these, these type of projects. So in the case of the new you know, uh, green prosperity and blue prosperity between Jordan, UAE and Israel, some Palestinian companies might have stakes uh, into whether it's the solar energy panels or to um, some of the desalinated water uh, within Israel. And so, so I think that's, that's important to keep in mind that, um, uh, again, the, the private businesses uh, don't have the general interest at play in general. And when it comes to Palestinian civil society, I think at the individual level, I think you said, right, that uh, I think when you're an individual and you live under extreme oppression, repression, stress and dispossession, you know, you can feel the need for some empathy and for some sort of normal and that's why I think a lot of Palestinian individuals might think that by sitting together with an Israeli, by discussing around the table, uh, they're given some agency, they're listened to, um, and, and this is obviously promoted and actively uh, prompted also by international Western liberal approaches. So people feel seen, people feel listened to, but the fact that the matter is, is that even if you create some form of empathy in a room, as you said, it doesn't change the fact that the Palestinian go back home under uh, unequal rights, still under apartheid, still denied their fair access to uh, water, still denied their access to land. And the Israeli goes back to being the dominant whose prosperity is built on Palestinian dispossession. And so I think it's normal humanly for some Palestinians to you know, think that these type of project could uh, change things. But over the years, again, these projects are not new. The people to people project have been actively promoted and millions have been poured into them after the Oslo agreements. 
but it, it has shown that it has not worked because uh, we're here today and Israel has only been able to cover up its crime and to continue its dispossession through active impunity, through partly this greenwashing. Inez, thank you so much for that. I think we'll leave it there for today. Um, but I hope you'll join us again on Rethinking Palestine. Thank you, Yara. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Rethinking Palestine. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. For more policy analysis and to donate to support our work, please visit our website, www.al-shabaka.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter.